are going to be in the book of Hebrews for our main text again this morning, Hebrews chapter 13. We'll start our last uh, chapter in Hebrews this morning. So if you want to turn there with me. Twenty twenty has been an interesting year to say the least. We have been welcomed into the year in March with a virus that was expected to wreak havoc on the world that we live in. Um, the expectations at the beginning were that there would be hundreds of thousands of people who would die because of this virus, maybe even to the millions of people who would die based upon this virus. Um, we have faced the challenges of that for several months. We've been quarantined in our homes and, and wrestled with the emotional challenges that come along with being quarantined in our homes. Uh, about two months into that, we have the, the outbreak of chaos in our culture where some men are killed by police officers and they are um, riots break out in the streets. Um, then police officers begin to die by the... Uh, large number of police officers begin to die at the hands of the ones who are protesting, and we faced that in 2020 already. Then we began to see some sense of, uh, I don't know, letting up of that, and then we are faced with fires, and fires all around us. California, if you look at a map of California, and I don't know, I haven't looked today, but if you looked at a map of California last week, you wouldn't see too many areas that weren't in some way impacted by some fires and the map was just you just see saturated with fires everywhere and now we come to the end of the year and everybody's everybody is at a high emotional level when it comes to this election and we have Donald Trump on one side the red state the one who is represented by um, the elephant and the conservative side of this uh, Donald Trump representing the conservatives and uh, some things that perhaps we might see as important. On the other side, we have Joe Biden, who is uh, representing the liberal side of things and his perspectives and his views that are being laid out for us. And we might say, based upon all of the things that have gone on around us in the last, in this year, we might say that there's been no higher stakes than there are in the election that we're getting ready to face in two months, we will vote on who will be our president for the next four years. And that is being surrounded by the idea that we need a cure for this virus. We need a way for the fires to be put out. We need to stop terrorizing the communities that are being terrorized by the, not, riot, not the ones who are protesting, but the rioters. We have all of these things that are kind of at the, at the forefront of, of what is happening in our minds and our lives, and the stakes are really high right now. And so, we're, so there are people who are out there saying that this election is, there's never been a more important election than this election because of all the things that are surrounding it. So we would say that the stakes are very high. If you choose Donald Trump, the stakes are very high that these things are going to happen and these things are going to go away. If you choose Joe Biden, the stakes are very high because these things are going to happen and there are certain things that he represents that are going to take place and things that he doesn't represent that are going to go away. We would all say that the stakes are very high right now. 
My challenge to you this morning is I'm not here to preach to you a message about the politics that are going on in our world today. I'm not here to preach, you a, to preach to you a message about fires, about chaos in our, in our communities. What I'm here to preach a message to you about this morning is, is there is a stake that is far higher than what we're dealing with in our culture today. It is a spiritual stakes. The spiritual stakes that we're dealing with right now are super, super high. We don't get it. We don't understand it. We don't comprehend it. We get sidetracked by all of the political and all of the physical things that are going on, and we see those stakes really high, and we lose sight of the fact that there are spiritual things that are taking place in our culture today, and those stakes are so much higher than anything that can happen physically to us. Here's what Hebrews chapter number 13 starts out with. Hebrews 13 starts out with three things that the author of Hebrews pleads with the church to persevere for. In other words, if the church does not persevere, if we do not have Davids like in Hebrews 11, if we do not have Daniels like in Hebrews 11, if we do not have Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego's like in Hebrews 11, something is going to happen to the church that is, that is not going to be good. The title of this morning's message is The High Stakes of Not Persevering. If we do not persevere as a church, as the body of Christ, things are going to happen that are going to be far more weighty than electing Donald Trump or Joe Biden. They're going to be far more weighty than fires in California or chaos in our communities. The decisions that we're making right now as the body of Christ are impacting the world forever and into eternity. We've got to stop looking so much at what we can see and stop looking at the things that we can't see. Satan is doing a powerful work in our world today to sidetrack the church from what matters. To sidetrack the church from what we ought to be focusing on. And in doing so, he is slowly manipulating the church to no longer being the church anymore. What's interesting is that if you... um, if you follow the history of the church, you can see this happening. It's, 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 it's amazing how we are, right? We can always look back and see trends. We just have a hard time looking forward and seeing what's going to happen, right? And my wife once wrote a little article on the difference between, prop, the difference between um, what was it? Do you remember? <laughs> I, I drew a blank. Yeah, the difference between seeing the providence of God and what has happened and trusting in by faith in what is going to happen. It is the difference between being able to look back and see God's hand versus being able to look forward and see what's going to happen in God's hand. We've got to get, we've, we've, we've got to, get to where we can look forward and see what God is doing. Or one day we'll look back and we'll say, oh, well, that's how that happened. But then it's like you can't go backwards. The church cannot go backwards. It moves forward, and so we have, to, we have to see that the stakes right now for the church are super, super high. And if we don't have some Davids, if we don't have some Daniels, if we don't have some Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's, if we don't have some men that are willing to stand up for the church and to do what's right and to do what's difficult and to do what's hard, the church, listen to me, the church will decline. The church will decline. L- let me say this to you. The church is declining. It is declining right now. And we've got some men, and I'm thankful for some of these men that are standing up strong. I appreciate, I I don't agree with John MacArthur on everything, but listen to me. I appreciate his stand that he's taking right now. The church needs to stand strong in the face of this opposition. 
This is not a physical thing. It's a spiritual thing. There's a warfare that's going on that you and I don't get. We don't see it. We don't understand it. We just see what we can see. We can't, we got to understand that there is a warfare, Ephesians chapter number six, that is not physical, but it is spiritual. And the devil wants to destroy God's church, doesn't he? Does anybody in here not believe that the devil doesn't want to destroy God's church? He is about destroying God's church. So he is going to, the, the author of Hebrews is going to plead with the people to be persevering in the faith because there are things that are going to die in the church if we don't persevere in the faith. There are things that are going to happen to the church of Jesus Christ if people don't stand up for what is right. And this moment is a moment like no other that the church is being challenged to stand up in the face of opposition, to stand up in the face of being told no. We must stand or we will fall. Listen to what the text of God says, and we'll read a few passages of Scripture to see this unfold. He says in verse number 1 of chapter number 13, Let brotherly love continue. And you can see the plea there. Something is getting ready to die. And the, and, the, and, the, and the author says, let brotherly love continue. Let it not stop. Let it not end. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who were in prison as though you were in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge <coughs> the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free. And if you just want to circle the word let in each one of these, this is, these are the three things that are going to decline. And the word keep, is, it's the same idea. It's the same focus as let. Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. Amen? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Turn with me if you would as well, to the book of Revelation. I want to read from the third chapter about the church at Sardis. We can see kind of what is at stake here. The high stake of not persevering. The Bible says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works... You have the reputation of being alive. A reputation is something that comes from the past, right? It's something that we build. So they have a reputation of being alive. In other words, they have a, a past. They have a history of being alive. But you are dead. In other words, you are dying. You have a reputation. You have a history of being alive, but you're dying. And then he says this, wake up and strengthen those things that remain and are about to die. 
Strengthen those things that remain or, and are about to die. In other words, there are things that we have today. There are things that still remain in the church. There are things that are still here, still present with us, still active in the body of Christ. That They are, they are declining and they are dying. And the author of, uh, uh, of this letter, Jesus Christ in, in, in uh, Revelation 3, is saying to, to, to wake up. And then to stabilize those things that remain and strengthen them. Don't, don't let them to continue to decline, but, but go the other direction. Make them strong again. Those things that have died, we have, to, we have to let them be buried. But there are things that are still alive in the church of Jesus Christ. And we must strengthen those things. I want to give you some thoughts this morning from this passage here in Hebrews 13. First of all, what is going to die if the church does not persevere. Three things, the, te- the text tells us, three things that are going to die if the church doesn't persevere. Number two, I want to share with you a little bit about what is the cause of this lack of perseverance. And then lastly, how can we overcome it? How can we win? How can we get through this moment and not have it impact the church in a negative way? So let me tell you some things that are going to die if the church doesn't persevere. If we don't stand firm in the face of the challenges that we're in right now, what's going to die? The Bible says in verse number one, let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated. And I want you to stop there. We have, we have some, what I would call some very tangible fruits here. We have some relational things, relationships that are taking place within the body of Christ, relationships of people um, functioning as a family. He uses the term brotherly love here to begin with, which is a, it's a, it's a term that's used, I think, four other times in the New Testament to describe an, an intimate, an intimate um, brotherly friendship an intimately brotherly relationship. Uh, Proverbs tells us a friend loves at all times, but the brother is born for adversity. In other words, brothers are, there's something more to a brotherhood, right? There's something deeper to a brotherhood. There's, there's something powerful and, and persevering when it comes to a brotherhood. So he says, let brotherly love continue. So brotherly love is, is going to die in the church if the church doesn't persevere. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. The second fruit of this first thing that's going to die is that the hospitality to strangers is going to die. Meaning people caring for people in the body of Christ. Meaning that when somebody's passing through the community that's a part of the body of Christ, that they're, they're, they're welcomed and they're invited into not just our churches, but into our homes. That we're opening up our homes. That Motel 6 is not getting their business, but Motel Prettyman is. I know this is foreign to us because we've got Motel 6 and they didn't have Motel 6 in the Bible. But he's saying that this is what is dying. I I believe with all my heart that every one of these things, we can see it dying right in front of our eyes today. We can see it dying right in front of our eyes today. Brotherly love, uh, perseverance um, through difficulty and challenges, love that, that goes beyond the surface level, it is dying in the churches today, is it not? Neglect of hospitality towards strangers. Listen, we struggle having hospitality towards our friends and our brothers. 
But to be able to have hospitality towards strangers, to have a, uh, a, an openness and, and, and intimacy with brothers and sisters in Christ that are passing through our area. He says, this is going to die. This is dying. Please don't let this die. He goes on to say, and uh, he says, he gives a reason at the end of this verse, for there, thereby some have even entertained angels unaware. And there's a lot of different uh, ideas that go along with this. Uh, Abraham entertained angels, and he and his wife cared for them. Lot entertained angels, and they, they took upon a physical form, and they, they cared for them. So we do see this principle in the Bible. Some believe that this just means messengers, or you entertain the messengers of Christ, and you don't even know it. The idea of it is, is don't stop showing hospitality to strangers. You may be showing hospitality to an angel or a messenger of Christ. When's the last time that we thought of that? This person might be an angel. I've had cases in my life where I've met somebody that I have, I have had an interaction with and, and I, they had impacted me so much and I never saw them again. And it was just that moment I just thought, I wonder if that was an angel. There's something about it, and again, I don't know. There's something about that experience that impacted me in such a way that I thought that was from the Lord at the very least. He says, some have entertained angels unaware. And then he says, remember those who are in prison. The word remember here is the same word that's used in Hebrews 2 and verse number 6 where the Bible says, what is man that you are mindful of them? In other words, the same the same mindfulness that the Lord has towards us. This is what he's calling us to. The same mindfulness that the Lord has towards us, he says, remember, be mindful of them, be considerate of those who are in prison. These are people who have been, who are in prison for the gospel, for the sake of the gospel. Do you know how easy it is to, to push aside those people who are in prison for the sake of the gospel? Well, they're just divisive. They're, they're just mean-spirited and mean-hearted. I will tell you this. If we continue on the path that we're on today, there will be preachers in our, country, in our state who will be in jail soon. If we keep going down the path that we're going down. It's going to happen. We, we, already have, we already have in our community, meaning the greater... Uh, Bay Area fines being given to churches for meeting. It's already happening. I watched a, I watched a, uh, a uh, video this week on YouTube of a pastor pleading with the governor for the ability to meet because his people need spiritual help. It's, it's happening. It's coming down. We're, we're, in that, we're in that stage and the church cannot cannot quake or quiver under this pressure. He says, remember those, have a heart towards those, be compassionate towards those who are in prison. And then he gives us an explanation. He says, as though you are in prison with them. This term literally means as, as have you ever heard of the idea of stocks and bonds? Not stocks and bonds, but what's the word? I'm looking for? Uh, stock. Uh, Paul and Silas were bound together. The Bible talks about in Matthew 28 to not be yoked. That's the word I was looking for, was yoked. Um, that's what this, the idea of this is. So he says this, 
Have a heart towards those who are in prison as if you were tied to them. As if you were tied to them. This is dying in the church today. It's just not there. He goes on to say, remember those who are in prison as though you're in prison with them and those who are mistreated. Uh, the, the idea here is outcast. Those who are seen as unimportant or insignificant. Those that have been pushed away. See that you, um, that you remember them or have compassion for them. Now I want you to notice this last thing. Here is the, here is the core of this. Because we're all part of the same body. What is the first thing that dies when the church doesn't persevere? It is the, it is the, it is the family-type intimacy that takes place in the body of Christ. We can, we, can, we can deal with brotherly love dying. We can deal with hospitality dying. We can deal with compassion dying. But listen to me. What he's saying here is the body of Christ he puts a weight on it that you and I can't, we cannot understand. Uh, Acts 20 and 28, the Bible says that the body of Christ is that for which Christ has shed his blood. Christ Jesus died for the body of Christ. He's saying that, that please don't let the body of Christ die. Please don't let what the body of Christ represents die. Don't let what the body of Christ means die. Don't let what the body of Christ holds up die. Don't let what Jesus Christ died for die. Jesus says, by all this, by, by this you shall know that you are my disciples, that you have love for one another. He's saying, don't let that die, church. Don't let that die. The body of Christ, it is that which he purchased with his own blood. It is that which he gives his spirit to, to, to work amongst us, to to." Unite us and unify us. Don't let that die. The body of Christ is at stake here. The reputation of Christ. The testimony of Christ. The work of Christ. Christ, Christ, Christ um, witness is at stake here. Let it not die by a by a fearful church. He goes on to say in verse number four, the second thing that will die if the church does not persevere is this. He says, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Here he, he talks about sexual immorality, right? I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty clear that that's his emphasis. And we live in a culture today where sexual immorality is rampant. He says to them, let, let marriage be honorable in the sight of all men. So here's the thing. Number one, God created, God created his church to work together, to love each other, to work together. That's at stake when the church doesn't persevere. Number two, God has created his church to be a place of moral, of moral uprightness. God has created his church. He saves people to be morally upright, to represent his, his morality to represent his purity. God has created this church to represent him. So here he says, let marriage be valuable again. Let marriage have a significance again. Let marriage be important again. I was reading this week an article that said in California, in the state of California, for every marriage there is a divorce. 
one to one. For every marriage, there is a divorce. And I've heard, and I've heard several, I've heard several unbelieving people use the use the issue of divorce to show how much the church is just like the world. He says, let marriage be honorable to God, to, to, to all men. Let marriage be seen as an honorable, important thing. And not just marriage, but the sexual relationship. We live in a culture today where, where, where sex outside of marriage is normal. Sex, sex before marriage is normal. Sex with, with, with same-sex relationships are normal. This is not normal in God's eyes. And, it's, and, the, and the church is meant to hold, uphold the standard. If the church dies, if the church depletes, if the church becomes weak, these things become more acceptable. Somebody must stand, and God's church is what has been established to stand for His morality. We can never weaken under the pressures of this world to say that, that immorality and adultery and fornication are okay. Nor can we ever shrink and become so weak that we say that not loving your brother and not standing for those who are in prison and not uh, 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 helping those who are mistreated is okay. We represent Christ. If the church dies, this dies with it. President Trump or President Biden means very little if the church dies. The church must rise up in this time and stand for something. Listen, it's not that marriages are dying and that sexual immorality is becoming rampant. Here's what's happening. Here's what he says. Here's the second thing that dies. He says, let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The second thing that's dying is a fear of God. The first thing that's dying is the church as a family a representation of Christ. The second thing that's dying is the fear of God. And that fear of God, is that lack of a fear of God is manifesting itself in so much immorality in our culture today. And it's not just in our culture today, folks. It's in our churches today. The church must be strong in these moments. The church must be holy in these moments. The church must be separated in these moments. Please, let marriage be held in honor. Please, let the bed be undefiled, for God will judge the adulterer and the fornicator. When do we get to the point where we fear God's judgment again? We fear His wrath. As a church, this should be where it's foundational, where we see and represent and understand the fear of God. I, I don't, it's good to fear the Lord, but I fear spiders. <laughs> um, Carry on. Thank you, brother. <laughs> the devil's trying to kill me with a spider in this moment <laughs> right now. Thank you, Derek. <laughs> thank you, Derek. So we need to realize this. The fear of God is declining. And if the church doesn't take a stand, if the church is not strong, if the church is weakening, it's at this moment, in this time, the fear of God is going to become less noticeable and then sexual immorality. And I honestly don't believe that, I believe that what the, what the author is doing here is giving us some evidence of what the fear of God produces and the lack of the fear of God produces. I don't think sexual immorality is the only thing that we're dealing with here. I think perhaps in this context, that's what they're dealing with most. 
But I, I will say this to you, when the church declines and the fear of God declines, everything declines. When the church declines and the brotherly intimacy of the body of Christ declines, all relationships decline. Morally we decline, relationally we decline. And ultimately, who, who, who is dishonored the most in those things? It's God. God is. So please, let brotherly love continue. Please, let the church be the church. Let the church be a united body of believers who are a family, who come together to worship God each week, but they live together and function together and work together all the time because God is their Father and they are brothers and sisters in Christ. Please, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled again. Don't bring things to the marriage bed that don't belong there because it is a, it is a divine institution of God. Because God will judge the immoral. God will judge the adulterer. God will judge. And may we never act as if he won't. Especially in the body of Christ. He says the third thing that's going to decline if the church doesn't stand and persevere is a devotion to the dependence on Christ. Watch what he says here. He says, number three, let your life be free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Just stop there for a moment. The third thing that happens that when the church declines is people become less dependent on the Lord for daily needs. They become less dependent on the Lord for... Um, for our, for our mental, emotional, physical health. It becomes less dependent on the Lord for these things. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. In other words, the love of money, 1 Timothy 6.10 says, the, the love of money is the fruit of all kinds of evil, right? So the love of money, again, is a fruit of this, but, but there's more to it. People, pe where the church is not strong, people grow dependent on other things other than Christ. Where the church is not standing for what is truth, the church, the church people, the world grows dependent on other things other than Christ. He says, let your life, let your conversation, church, let your conversation be free from dependence on things other than Christ. Let your life be free from those things that are, that are not Christ. He says, keep yourself free from the love of money and be content. Another fruit of it is contentment. Be content with what you have. Would we say that contentment would define the church today? I would say the opposite. I would say what defines the church today is discontentment with what we have. We want better. We want different. We want more. We want less. This that you say, well, well, of course, Pastor John, that's the way it's supposed to be. No, it's not. We're to be dependent on Christ. We're to be trusting in Christ, right? For everything. 
If we're trusting in Christ, when we're, when we're trusting in Christ, it's like in the Old Testament when the Jews were trusting in God and they complained. God got really angry with them because who did it reflect on? Who did it reflect on? Him. He says, be content with what you have because I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, the issue isn't you, the issue is God. The issue isn't you at the beginning, the issue is God. The issue isn't you with, with, with fearing God, it's God. The issue isn't you with, with um, being content, it's God. The issue is God in every aspect. We are representing God here today. We're representing His unity. We're representing His holiness. We're representing His ability to supply. And everything that we say and do reflects on Him. Is he, is he really holy to where He will not accept unholiness? Is He really unified in the body, in the, in the Trinity, to where the, His church is perfectly unified? Is that true about our God? And we would all say theologically a, heart, a hearty, Amen, yes, it's true, but we function with no brotherly love. We function neglecting to show hospitality to strangers. We function neglecting to remember those who are in prison or those who are being persecuted. We live in our marriages as if these things are not important or valuable. We, 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 we watch things on the internet and on the TV that, that put things into our mind that are totally disrespectful to the marriage relationship. We live with adultery and fornication being prominent in our culture. We have same-sex marriages and same-sex relationships, and we see them as being okay. They're not okay. Our God is a holy God. And we represent Him. Yes, we can love those people, but that lifestyle is not okay. And somebody has to stand up and say what is right. If the church isn't saying what is right, then no one will be. God, help us when the church is gone. God, help us when the church is no longer able to stand and say, no, you're wrong. Please, please turn from your wicked ways and live and be saved and be delivered. He says, be content with what you have. Live a life of contentment. Live a life of satisfaction. I, I love what the Lord says in, in the Apostle Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9 when the Apostle Paul is facing some pretty difficult challenges. Here's what he says. My grace is, my grace is sufficient for you. Right? Would we say that this morning? I mean, honestly, would we say that God's grace, that word literally means satisfying. It's like something to be contented with. My grace is something you should be content with. That's all you need. Is that true? I mean, is that just like a theolo I mean, is that like a verse in the Bible that doesn't mean anything? No, it is true. It does mean something and it does matter. What is dying in our culture today when the church dies is content contented living. It's contented living. Living like we're satisfied with God. Let's go on. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And I want to look at a couple other references. If, you, if, you will, if you'll join me um, back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 31. I want you to see something. Just, just actually, 
go to Deuteronomy 31 and just hold your finger there. I want to say this. So, so those are the three things that are dying. Here's the reason why they die. He says this in our text. He goes on to say, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. And then the middle of that verse says, I will not what? I will not fear. Listen to me. The cause, the cause of the dying church is fear. The cause of the dying church is fear. The reason why the, the writer says, I will not fear, because it is fear that causes the church to die. It is fear that causes the church to die. And here's what he's saying to us. He's saying to us, do not fear. I, I love what he says. Uh, he says in regards to the middle of this, I will not fear. What can man do to me? So one of the fears that we have is the fear of men, don't we? And we might have somebody that says it's in a high power that says, no, this lifestyle is okay, or this is okay, or that is okay, and, and it's not okay. And if we fear that man, or we fear that position, or we fear that, fear that role, we might placate to that and try to, you might fear a relationship being lost and therefore not take a stand for the Lord. The fear of men is very, very powerful in, in causing God's church to become weak, isn't it? I, I think this is interesting as well. Psalm 56 and verse number 3 is where this is quoted from. And it says this. It says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to just read it from here. It says, basically, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can the flesh do to me? I thought it was interesting to put those two things together because there are two things that we fear in this life that really motivate us to become soft and weak. Number one is what man can do to us. And number two is what the flesh can do to us. One of the reasons why I read out of Philippians 1 this morning is because, because Paul really gives us an idea of how fearful he was of what the flesh could do to him. He didn't fear it at all. He didn't fear it at all. I, I will not fear what can man do to me, or I will not fear what can the flesh do to me. What can the, the, there's a lot of things that we could we could put into that category of things that we fear that cause us to become, become self-protecting. And not, you know, you don't, I, I, I would challenge any of you to read Hebrews 11 and bring me some fear from that passage of Scripture. Just bring me a little bit of fear from that. Because it's not there. Because a faith life is not a fear life. It is the antithesis of a fear life. Fear is the opposite of faith. Fear is what, is what eliminates faith. And on the other hand, faith is what eliminates fear. And that's my last thought this morning is faith is, the, faith is God's tool for you to overcome fear, which leads to your decline spiritually and the church's decline spiritually. We have to overcome fear. That's the thing. We have to overcome fear. Right now, we're in a state where there is fear over the pandemic. There is fear over the fires. There is fear over the election. There is fear over... The devil can throw a thousand different things at us to fear. And what happens is the church declines through each one of those things. The church must be strong. The church must stand in the face of fear and say, No, I will not be afraid. I will not fear. I refuse to be afraid. 
The only way that we can get to the point where we refuse to be afraid is to have the heart of the Apostle Paul that says, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. He says, I don't even know what I'd rather do. I, I don't even know what I'm going to do. I would rather, I would rather depart and go and be with the Lord. But if it's for other people's benefit, I'll stay here. I would say to you this, I would challenge you with this thought. How many of us could say, I will protect my life only because it's for other people's benefit? Because I think a lot of us protect our lives for our benefit. It's about us and not about him and not about others. The only way that we're going to ever overcome this fear that leads to decline is by being full of faith in a God who is bigger and better. Three things that you have to remember and believe in order to not be afraid and to persevere. Number one is that God will never leave you. This word literally means to push, to, to push somebody away. It's to, it's to reject somebody. God will never push you away. Let me, you, you, guys, you guys held your spot in, in Deuteronomy 31. Listen to what he says here. Every time that the Lord uses this phrase, I will never leave you or forsake you, it's four times in the Old Testament, every time he associates it with courageous lifestyle. Courage! He says, in verse number six, he says, um, be strong and very courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will... What does it say? He will never leave you nor forsake you. When Joshua, in Joshua chapter number one, when Joshua was taking over the reins from, from Moses to lead the children of Israel, you guys all know it. God tells, God tells Joshua, be courageous. Moses tells Joshua, be courageous, right? You know what he throws in there in Joshua one and verse number five? Be strong and very courageous. Because why? Because the Lord will never, What? will never leave you nor forsake you. It's interesting about this phrase in the, in the Greek New Testament. It literally has four negatives. It's like the strongest negative that you could say. He will never, never, never leave you, nor never, never, never forsake you. The Lord will never, you can be fearless knowing that God will never push you away. You can also be, be fearless knowing that he will never forsake you. This means to leave you behind. God will never leave you behind. He will never forsake you. This is God's promise to these people as he tells them, live boldly. Why? Because there's no risk in life, right? There's no danger. There's nothing that could ever, that bad that could ever come into your life. You're never going to face any challenges because, and that's why you should live boldly. No. False. Right? You should live boldly because God will never leave you nor forsake you. Let me ask you something this morning. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God will never leave you nor forsake you? How does it manifest? How can we see it? Without me asking you that question, would I be able to see it? Would you be able to see that in me without, me, without you coming and saying, Pastor John, do you believe that God will never leave you nor forsake you? Would I be able to say, well, just tell me if, if I believe that or not. Tell me if I believe that. 
because you can see it. You should be able to see it. How do we defeat fear? We defeat fear by believing that God is never going to leave us. He's never going to push us aside. He's never going to push us away. It's really a fatherly, it's really a fatherly type of, of, uh, of, uh, of comment here. The Lord will never push you away. He'll never push you away. The Lord will never get out ahead of you. Isn't that encouraging? It's the Lord, the Lord waits for us. It's like, have you, ever, have you ever felt like you were moving slowly in life? Uh, the older you get, the slower you feel like you're moving, right? Here's what the Lord is saying. I'll never, I'll never go too fast for you. I'll never leave you behind. It's like, Lord, I'm, I'm still back here. I'm still struggling with this struggle that I'm in right now, Lord. And I just feel like you're way ahead of me. And the Lord says, no, I, I'll never let you, I'll never leave you behind. That's a promise that God gives us. I will never forsake you. He's right there with us. And then he goes on to say this. And I would encourage you in your own time to read from um, Psalm 118, uh, verse 6 through 8. Also, um, Joshua 1, some other passages as well. He says this, the Lord is my helper. So the second thing, the third thing that you've got to believe if you're going to overcome fear is that the Lord is your helper. And I would just like for you to think about the fact, put whatever, whatever term you want to be in there. The Lord is my provider. Do you believe the Lord is your provider? The Lord is my protector. Do you believe the Lord is your protector? The Lord is my physician. Do you believe that the Lord is your physician? The Lord is my... Put the word in there. There is nothing that we have to fear if we know that the Lord is everything. There's nothing that we have to fear if we know that the Lord is the source of all of our protection. He's the source of all of our provision. He's the source of all of our help. He's the source of all of our care. He, right? Is that not true? Is that not true? The Lord is my helper. I, I must believe that. I must embrace that. And when I believe that and embrace that, I will not, what? I will not fear. And when I'm not afraid, I don't let brotherly love decline. I don't neglect the hospitality of strangers. I don't, I don't, uh, stop caring for those who are in prison or those who are mistreated because I don't live for me, I live for others. I don't let, I don't let marriage be defiled. I don't let marriage be dishonored before God because I believe that God is a judge of the immoralities and adulterous ways of this world. I don't live a discontented life because I believe that the Lord is my helper. I believe that He is my caretaker. I believe that He's my caregiver. And therefore, I will not be afraid what can man do to me. My challenge to us this morning is simply this. During this time where fear is climactic, the church must not be afraid. The church must not give way to fear that leads to the decline of God's glory in regards to the unity the holiness, and the contentment of His people. We must, as seen in Revelation 3, strengthen those things that remain. I want to close with a little illustration. 
D.L. Moody was once asked. D.L. Moody was a, a preacher of old, uh, a man of God who was once addressed by one of his parishioners. A lady came up to him and said, Pastor, Pastor, I have this wonderful promise from the Lord. And he said, well, sh- share with me. What is it? She said, she said, it's Psalms 56 and verse 3. And he says, well, what does it say? And she says to him, Pastor, it says, when I am afraid, I will trust in the Lord. And D.L. Moody said to her, that's a really great promise that you have from the Lord. You can really hold on to that. And then D.L. Moody says, but but I've got a better one for you. And she says, Pastor, share it with me. He says, Isaiah 12 and verse number 2. He says, God, behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. Oh, that we could have the heart that says, God is my salvation. God is my deliverer. God is my physician. God is my provider. God is my protector. God is everything to me. I will trust and not be afraid. Lord, help us today. Help us to to know your heart Help us to know your care. Help us to know your compassion. Help us to feel your presence in our lives, to know that you are good, to know that you will never push us aside. You'll never leave us behind, to know that you are our helper in everything. Lord God, remove all of the fear that we have, that we might be a people, that we might stand in such a way that Hebrews chapter number 11 would be real to us. Help us to stand as a people of faith in the living God. I pray your blessing upon this time this morning. I pray that the truth would penetrate our hearts, that we would go home and meditate on them further and see, God, your life manifest through us. We give you the praise for you, Christ.